Hi, I'm Josh Lipscomb. And I'm Liz Fondrist. And you're listening to the Steady State Podcast. So sit ready. I'm Tara Morgan. And I'm Rachel Friedman. Here at Steady State Podcast, we are really interested in backstories, real life experiences on and off the water that make all the rowers, coaches, and coxswains they are today. From indoor rowing to flat water masters to coastal and ocean adventurers, we celebrate you who represent the global humanity of our sport to disrupt and expand the narrative about rowing culture. If you're a first time listener, welcome. If you're coming back for another episode, thanks for being here. On the last episode, we spoke with Capital Juniors and Wisco alum Rebecca Armstrong about the slowly changing face of rowing in the United States, finding mentors and support, and her drive to help BPOC athletes as a certified mental performance consultant. If you missed it, listen anytime at steadystatenetwork.com slash podcast or anywhere you get podcasts. Steady State Podcast is sponsored in part by Concept2, making world-class rowing products since 1976. Find out more at concept2.com. Live to Row Studios, live online and in-person indoor rowing classes, training camps and coaching for everybody. Visit livetorowstudios.com. Barb, for short hair styling needs on and off the water, find Barb at thebarbshop.com. EB5, the online community helping those seeking a green card to the EB5 visa program. Find out more at www.eb5investors.com. Only a handful of rowing clubs around the world cater specifically to the LGBT community. In this episode celebrating Pride, we introduce you to leaders at DC Strokes Rowing Club and the Melbourne Argonauts, who talk with us about rowing, the gay rights movement in the 90s, safe spaces, and why this part of the diversity issue is still relevant. Okay, so hey, Rachel, it's the Pride episode. Yeah. Hey, Tara, I am looking forward to this conversation for a lot of reasons, but one of them is that you and I come at this from really different life experiences. And, you know, I'm coming to this as an ally who has been learning and growing as an ally for a long while now. And I'm looking forward to talking to our guests about their experiences in the LGBTQIA community and how that's changed over the years. I, I certainly know that your perception of things is a completely different vantage point than kind of where I'm coming from. And I'm looking forward to those conversations. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's always been a longstanding argument about safe spaces that are specifically for LGBTQIA folks um, and the A's, of course, are always welcome. Yeah. Um, a is being allies. And I think we also don't want to assume anyone else's experience, right? Like you and I have to, I've always been very transparent about where we're coming from. Yeah. And I've yet to row or participate in an LGBTQIA specific club, but I have had the experience of rowing in a women's only club. And I can speak to that in terms of it being a safe space to be who we are and share our experiences with each other. And I would imagine that being in an LGBTQIA uh, club would be very similar, but there is a longstanding argument about quote unquote mainstreaming or integrating and Mm -hmm. that that actually as part of the gay rights movement 
um, versus having specific spaces for specific folks. Mm. Um, and I think it's interesting that these clubs have persevered. So, to, so in this episode, we're talking to the Melbourne Argonauts in Australia. We're talking to a representative from uh, DC Strokes who has an affiliation or a history with DC Strokes in Washington, DC and one from the Chicago Rowing Union, which are sort of the three long-standing, well-established clubs. There is the Beyblades in San Francisco, but they haven't been as active. And there's also the, um, sorry, is the Melbourne team, the Otters? Oh, London, that's London. No. Is the yeah, London the London Otters. Otters, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we'd love to talk to them too. Absolutely, and you know, I wanna be really upfront with everyone is that I have been a member of DC Strokes since 2010. And not just a member, but also a coach there. And it has been a big eye-opener and a big learning experience for me, um, being a part of that community as an ally. But we know that attitudes towards gay folks uh, in other countries, other parts of the world, other parts of our country, um, it can vary quite uh, broadly. And especially nowadays, you know, there's so much uh, emphasis on finding out how we can all live together in the society, you know, copacetically and celebrated and, and all of that. I'm curious though, with your relationship with DC Strokes, you know, what drew you to that group? Was it just merely convenient and coincidence and their schedule worked with your schedule and you were willing to cox or coach or, or be whatever you were? And then how were you welcomed into that? Yeah. What was the welcome mat like in that group? Yeah, well, let me tell let me tell you real quick my story. There is that so DC Strokes rose out of the Anakashi Community Boathouse in Washington D.C. In that boathouse, there are several clubs, including Capital Rowing Club. And Capital is a club that I learned to row with and rowed with for several seasons. And Capital was a great place for me for many many years. And then I got injured and I ended up off the water. And I'd been off the water for basically a full season. And then a friend of mine who had made the move from Capital to Strokes as a coach contacted me on the off season. And he said, hey, when you're ready to come back to the boathouse, I really want you to come join Strokes. And Austin was awesome. And he convinced me. And it wasn't even really like, I don't remember there being a big debate in my head. I wasn't thinking oh no, I'm going to leave Capital and what's going to happen? And oh, I'm joining DC Strokes, which is an LGBT club. Like, I just thought this is an awesome club of people. A buddy of mine is coaching. Let me give it a try. And what I will tell you and what kept, what kept me around that first season is how incredibly welcoming the entire team was from the, from the president down. And I just remember walking in the boathouse and it was all about hugs in the morning, hugs after practice. You know, it was really about community first and then rowing. Don't get me wrong. We rowed a lot. We rowed well, we rowed fast, but really I enjoyed the community aspect of it. Yeah. And I think, you know, in my experience as a person who identifies as queer and have since uh, 1991, something like that. I think that's not unexpected in that particular community because we're constantly navigating where we're going to be excluded and how we're going to be excluded um, and how obvious it is, you mm -hmm. know, whether we're against or, or with the social norms or, the, or the, the norms of our particular society or community. And the 
the gays have gotten real good at creating little micro communities and what we call a chosen family. I mean, everybody yeah. has chosen family. It's yeah. not just a, a, a LGBT thing, but I think that there is an intense desire to not be exclusive when you're already excluded, mm-hmm. you know? So you really are, are, are motivated to uh, put out the welcome mat and then see, just see where it goes and be, bring a lot of joy to it. That's not to say that there's not drama because in every rowing club, there's drama. Um, there's always something, you know, that's going to happen with leadership or we all do what we do. It's a sport that we love. Um, I know that in Seattle, the Lake union crew put together what they called the rainbow eight. Hmm. So they just happened to have at some point, eight gay men who identified as such and were willing to fly the flag. Um, mm-hmm. down the race course and that was really fun to see because it was sort of this microcosm of an lgbt club and i always wondered why seattle didn't have a specific mm. um lgbt club because there is such yeah. a huge community yeah. and um sport is a big part of it there's a very successful swimming club there's a very successful cycling club different different spokes yeah um so I always wondered why that never took off, but you know. yeah, well, and that's something I want to talk with our guests about is, you know, being a part of a larger LGBT sporting environment. And this goes to something that I'm curious about. And I know you're curious about, which is how important is that today versus 30 years ago? You know, the safe spaces are important, but things are changing and acceptance is broader and how relevant are LGBT clubs and sport clubs today? I think that that discussion extends to um, safe spaces that are social spaces like bars that are lesbian bars or gay bars um, to, to a lot of different pieces in culture and I used to be involved with the group and and we would have that discussion a lot like I wonder if that's part of the reason why it's it's not happening in Seattle is because Mm -hmm. there's it's generally generally a liberal minded city um, that doesn't have such a big cultural divide when it comes to that Mm -hmm. um, that particular issue Um, and I think that's another question that I would have is how much time do you spend on the advocacy front and how much time do you spend on the messaging front mm-hmm. um, to dispel myths, to promote acceptance? And I want to kind of circle this back to why we boycotted Masters Nationals in Florida mm-hmm. last mm-hmm. year and why there was a big boycott from DC Strokes. And it was because it was not a safe state and mm-hmm. that, that we didn't feel like uh, there was a large uh, uh, perception that U.S. rowing was being a little lenient. And thinking about those things, um, that's a state where it's openly an issue and openly mm-hmm. legislated against. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's so, a whole other conversation. Oh, yeah, for sure. A lot of people said, well, but why don't we show up in Florida, right? Show up, show your face, fly the flag in Florida. Right. And I would say as a gay person, uh, it's not my responsibility to change Mm -hmm. someone's mind just because I happen to identify as that. And I think that also applies to anyone in that BPOC community, the disability community, you know, and I think a lot of people don't want that responsibility. Mm -hmm. But I think by virtue of joining a club like DC Strokes or joining a club like Melbourne Argonauts, you are kind of stepping up to the plate and and being an advocate by being vocal and being on social media and by being at regattas flying 
the rainbow flag. And, you know, you and I can relate to this a little bit in terms of how we were welcomed in Boston uh, last year as an allies boat, which was mm-hmm. a trans and trans ally and queer and queer ally rowing down the Charles. Now, we weren't the first boat to be of that makeup. It's just we were the first openly Mm -hmm. Uh, to be of that makeup and we decided to shoulder that and have those discussions so yeah I think the advocacy question is is important too yeah yeah absolutely so I'm actually a little curious about like I there's a question I'd like to ask which is like what is your involvement as a club in terms of advocacy but you Mm -hmm. have to understand it is not Mm -hmm. their responsibility to be advocates right they have a choice and you might have one or one or 10 years where everybody's really about advocacy they have a float in the pride parade they have a you know they're really like going out there after it and sometimes it's just like hey guys we're it's dangerous for us to be out in society so we're just going to be in our cool safe space and we're just going to do our thing and we're going to keep it roll yeah well i am looking forward to talking with liz and josh and hearing all about their experiences as rowers and rowers with dc strokes and the melbourne argonauts and then catching up with Chicago Rowing Union as well. So um, we'll catch you on the flip side. Yeah, let's do it. All right. Hello. Hi. Hello. My name is Josh Lipscomb. I identify as queer. My pronouns are they, he. Uh, I learned to row in 2003. Uh, I grew up in regional Victoria, so at a school out there. Uh, since then, I've rowed for uh, Yarra Yarra Rowing Club in Melbourne on the Yarra, and I am now rowing for the Melbourne Argonauts Queer Rowing Club on Upper Park Lake in Melbourne. Today, I'm the president of the Melbourne Argonauts, and in my professional life, uh, I'm an ag tech investment manager for a government-funded organisation in Victoria. So my name is Liz Fondrist, and I identify as straight and definitely gay-friendly, and I learned to row in 1988 at Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts, and uh, rode for Smith all four years and then joined Strokes in 1993. Um, but I've also rowed with a couple other clubs in the D.C. area, including Capital and Alexandria and Potomac. Um, so pretty much almost all of them, except for Rock Creek. And uh, But these days, mostly I coach. I've been a long-time learn-to-row instructor for D.C. Strokes. Uh, that goes back to 2004. And uh, and then also been some of the program, done some program coaching as well. So And in my off-the-water life, I uh, work for the National Park Service, and I run a grant program that gives funding for outdoor recreation. So pretty much anything you can play on, including boathouses and, and courses, water courses. Now, if you don't awesome. mind me asking, I know that you just got back from Barbados. Could you tell us why you were there? Yes, my husband is a, a foreign service officer and he was recently posted to Barbados. So I went down to uh, visit him and check out the country down there and sort of figure out, uh, hopefully um, relocating down there uh, on a sort of temporary, but it'll be a couple year basis. And Stephen um, is also a rower. Yes, yes, he is. <laughs> so... We do this thing at the beginning of our episodes called rapid fire. Uh, We like to put you in the hot seat for a lightning round of questions. Are you ready? Sure. Yeah. Port or starboard? Port. Port. Bow seat, stroke seat, or engine room? Stroke seat. (laughs) Stroke seat. (laughs) Head race or sprint race? Head race. Head race. Uni suit or tank and trowel? Oh, uni suit. Hmm. No preference. <laughs> Favorite Cox 
command, coxswain command, to give or receive? Lift. Mm-hmm. Any power ton or power strokes? Favorite place to row? Oh, I don't know. Um, I'm going to say the Goldman River in regional Victoria. And what's special about it? There's a couple of really great regattas up there, but we do our rowing camp, which is called Camp Camp, um, up uh, on the Goldwyn River. And it's just beautiful. It, the, there's a national, like, uh, there's an Olympic court rowing course that you can, that we get to row on and train on and practice on. But there's also just this beautiful river um, that you can row down. And we're one of the head races that's there. You row into a winery. Oh, <laughs> a winery. Lovely. <laughs> yeah. Lovely. Well, my favorite river is uh, is the Charles, or really, it's just my favorite race, and it's it's uh, to me, it's like it's everything about about rowing and how amazing it can be. The head Charles are pretty fantastic. I was just talking to some folks about it coming up in October, and Tara and I had put together um, a mixed eight for the Directors Challenge event last year, and uh, it's really time to start thinking about that again. Actually, registration opens next month, believe it or not. June. Oh my God. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> what What is the director's challenge? Oh, uh, so the director's challenge is kind of a special event at the end of the head of Charles and you don't have to be a club to enter. And basically it's your opportunity to pay a little bit extra to go down the course and whatever boat you want with the people that you want. And that uh, helps support the general Head of the Charles Endowment, um, which is a pretty fantastic fund. Tara and I did that last year with a crew we put together called Allies with Oars, which included a trans rower and LGBT athletes and allies. And that was kind of the flag that we were flying as part of the director's challenge last year. Mm. When we were sitting in the basin getting ready to start, we saw like teams in costumes. We saw a boat full of Olympic rowers. I mean, it's just kind of anybody who wants to can get into this event. And you saw me. <laughs> and I saw you. You were out there in a launch. Yeah, safety yes, launch. I, I was, uh, Stephen and I volunteer at the Charles, or we have for yeah. the past couple of years. And so we actually on Sunday, I had the amazing opportunity to be at what they call the top of the zipper, which is when you sort of get all the teams kind of lined up to head down to the to the shoot. So uh, so that was kind of um, it's fun, and you get to see everybody. Yeah, <laughs> well, that I sounds love, really cool. Yeah. I love when you called out my name. That was like oh, it just felt so special, like to have you there when we when we were making our way to the start line. And it's a party in the basin. I mean, the, the Olympians were all in costume. Yeah. And one other piece of the Director's Cup or Director's Challenge is that that's the only category that allows a, a quad, a blind quad to go down the river mm-hmm. because they can go so stinking fast. Okay, Rachel, last couple questions. Okay, so bringing it back to rapid fire. Best piece of rowing advice you've ever received? This is kind of a funny one. A couple of years ago, we were at a regatta and we had uh, a very experienced coach with us at the time. And we were just wandering around the regatta, just, you know, getting food and watching people race and everything. And he came up to us and he's like, why are you walking? Why are you standing? Save your legs. Sit down. And we're like, oh, this is such simple advice. Like we were doing like three or four races that day. I'm like, why are we, why are we using our legs? Such simple, simple, simple advice, but like change, like, you know, much more resting time. Uh, really, really silly, but simple advice. It's smart. Mm-hmm. I think the best advice I, I got was actually not given to me directly. It was given to to one of the other squads, but it was talking about sort of how to you know improve as a performance as a team. And it was uh, basically sort of a recommendation to kind of take 
you know, take oppor any opportunity to take strokes, you know, sort of seriously, like even, you know, whether you're doing drills or, you know, you're doing practice pieces or whatever it is, like you, you have to use them as sort of an opportunity to learn something, to improve, you know, improve something about your rowing. Like you can't just take strokes for taking them. Like you have to make, like any stroke is a training opportunity and you have to treat it as, as such. Oh, yeah. I, this is top of mind for me because last night, I was voted in a seven and it was windy and we did two by 20 minutes oh. by seven. Yuck. <laughs> and that was practice that, exactly. You know, and so my, I was talking to somebody about it this morning and they said, well, you know, what did you get out of it? And I thought about it and I thought, well, I think I learned some extra patience <laughs> and a little extra humility. <laughs> um, but besides that, it was a really frustrating row. But I, I like what you said, Liz, about making something out of every opportunity. See what yeah, you can I've heard that said as a no stroke wasted. Yeah, stroke. yeah that's a much more concise way of putting it. I like that. Yeah. So. One more question. Um, coffee before or after a row? Oh, after. Before. <laughs> Finally, we never had something. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you coffee before rowing people. I don't understand how it just doesn't come up. So here at Steady State Podcast, you know, there are a lot of podcasts and media outlets that really address issues like straight on. And what our whole podcast is about is about the people behind um, the various clubs and people behind the various events. So we really love talking about and we're really interested in the decisions and the life events that lead people to rowing. So we want to ask you what was going on in your life uh, when you found rowing and what got you hooked? So I've been rowing for about, I don't know, 20, just over 20 years now. And I grew up in regional Victoria. Um, and in Australia, traditionally, the boys play football and the girls play netball. And that's kind of it. Like, they're your options. In my school, there was like a few of us who didn't really fit into either of those sports with this weird, like, weird little ragtag, mobbly bunch uh, kind of thing. And we kind of somehow all got pushed into trying rowing one day. And it turned out like, the weird kids end up being very good at a sport, um, which was really nice and quite a change and turn of events. And, you know, we ended up getting like called out at assemblies for doing really well at regattas. And it was just this like really nice kind of like, oh, cool. The weird kids, are, the weird kids were all right. Um, and it was really like quite great. And then I, um, I left, uh, I left like my hometown and moved to Melbourne. And then a couple of years later, I joined a club on the river and then, um, and then I sort of like found the Argonauts uh, after there and was like, oh, this is great. This is a nice, queer, safe space for me to continue doing the sport that I love. Um, and that's kind of, I've just been there since. Uh, well, for me, I uh, I didn't start rowing until college, but I um, it actually, I became more, most aware of rowing um, probably my senior year of high school. One of my friends was dating a West Point cadet and she convinced me to drive her up to visit her boyfriend at West Point one one weekend uh promised to show me a good time and uh, so anyway and it happened that there was a regatta that day so you know here we are like you know up in the palisades like it's a beautiful fall day the trees are turning colors there's like three you know, I think there was like three teams at the regatta. I can't remember who else was there besides West Point, but um, but you know, we're watching these these races come up the river, and there's like a thousand screaming cadets in uniform, like watching this race. And I was like, this is like the most amazing thing ever. So, <laughs> so anyway, so it just seemed like rowing, you know, could be a cool thing to do. And um, and at least for the college that I went to, there was very few sports that you could walk onto at the, at that point. And sort of rowing, 
and I think lacrosse were like the only uh, teams that were you could go in with sort of no prior experience. I mean, most everything else was like already varsity. And so, you know, to play, you already had to have background in that sport. But like for for crew, you actually could have an obvious year in college. And so um, so it was a good sport for someone who had never actually done sports before. And so you're at Smith College, right? Mm-hmm. In Massachusetts, and you walk on. And what did you find there? And what got you hooked? What did you like about it or in those early practices? Um, I think it was it was just um, it was an opportunity to sort of push myself in a way that I'd never um, I had not played sports in high school. I had been a horseback rider. So, I mean, that was, um, you know, the, which is a very individual kind of activity. Um, well, except for the, the horse. But um, so it was sort of a unique opportunity to actually do something with other, you know, with other people. And and the although the women who came out for the team were, you know, it was a really sort of fun group. They were really interesting, um, you know, so it was a community um, within, you know, a way to meet people, even as a, as a first year student at, at Smith. Um, but it was also just kind of a, a unique opportunity to push myself in a way I never had. Yeah. Josh, did you have that experience where it really challenged your sense of sport and coordination and Oh my God. My sister was like incredibly competitive and incredibly successful at every sport she ever touched, like football, basketball, soccer, tennis, like anything. Like she did all these, like all these sort of like fringe sports and she was excellent at them. And I tried them and I was terrible, like couldn't catch a ball to save my life. Like I needed to use like the T ball for baseball to like actually like hit the ball. It was very uncoordinated. I still am. Um, And when I started rowing, realized that all these like skills, that traditional sports kind of needed, I could use in a little bit of a different way or apply a different approach in rowing and felt like I could actually like do something and do something well, um, as long as I'm in stroke seat because I can't keep time to save my life, but I can set a pace. I can set a pace, I just can't follow. So yeah, I kind of like realized that I was like, oh, I, I can, sports are actually for me. Until then, I just thought that they weren't, weren't wasn't ever something that was gonna be in my life. Homebuyers are flocking to Maine for mountain, lake, and ocean access, friendly neighbors, and above all, relaxation like you'll find nowhere else. If the vacation land lifestyle is one you'd like to explore, reach out to the folks at the Breakwater Realty Group, brokered by eXp Realty. With agents up and down the coast and inland to the mountains, they'll provide the friendly expertise needed to get you into your next home in Maine or New Hampshire. Learn more or contact the team by visiting breakwaterrealtygroup.com. Today's Day podcast is made possible with listener support. Become a patron today for early access to episodes, discounts on SSN swag, and invitations to patron-only events. Find out more at studystatenetwork.com slash Patreon. In two, we're back with Liz Fondriest and Josh Lipscomb. That's one too. So season after season, you guys keep coming back to your boathouse as rowers and coaches. And we have a pretty simple question, which might have complicated answers, which is why? Why do you keep returning to the boathouse? Well, I think for me, I mean, rowing, rowing is definitely community. I mean, I'd say, I'd say most of my, um, even people, you know, who haven't rowed with the team for many years have, you know, have remained some of my best friends. Uh, so I, I don't know what it is about crew, but it does seem to attract a, a great community. I mean, there's a lot of very intense, you know, intense people, but I, I mean, maybe it's that sort of same spirit of what, you know, 
how crew works. I mean, it just it attracts a certain kind of person, and those people also make often make good friends. So, um, so I certainly wouldn't have anywhere near the variety of people in my life now if it hadn't been for been for rowing. But I also, in in recent years, as I've, I mean, I've been coaching, you know, for about the last sort of fifteen, and and I teach learn to row primarily for you know for DC strokes, and that itself has also been a really amazing experience. I love introducing people to the sport of rowing, and you know, trying to get people into something that they you know didn't think that they could do, and so that uh, that experience is very rewarding after year after year, and so that's that's one of the things that's kept me going. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with um, pretty much everything you just said, and. I think what kind of like ultimately what keeps me kind of coming back year on year is when I first sort of um, particularly when I first sort of met the Argonauts, I met some of my best friends that I'm still friends with eight years later and some of them are still rowing and some of them aren't. And through like through the club, I like really found this community and found all these people that, you know, you don't always get along with everybody in a large community, especially, you know, in a queer community, everyone's like very, um, uh loves the flair for drama sometimes um but it's this group of people that have always have always um contributed to creating this space that is the club uh the Argonauts and I've definitely received a lot from that and it I just feel like it's like you know part of, maybe it's part of my who I am but like I just feel like I, I need a compelling need to like make sure that I'm giving back to the club in some way shape or form um to make sure that it still exists and continues to exist for other people who are looking for a space like the Argonauts forever and ever. Josh tell us about the rowing scene in Melbourne I know with Liz she's at Anacostia Boathouse and there's a lot of clubs there in that one boathouse and there's a lot of uh, rowing happening in in DC and same with where I am in Seattle but What's the rowing community as a whole look like in Melbourne? And then the second part of that question is how does this fit in or act as a surrogate for the queer community? Yeah, so we, Melbourne Argonaut, where our, um, our mission statement is a rowing club in the queer community and a queer club in the rowing community, which is really quite nice. And the rowing, when we first started out 23 years ago, it was at a time where, you know, homophobia was still quite strong in most sports, but particularly rowing. It was still quite hard for women to be like taken seriously as serious competitors in rowing. One of our founders, like she was telling me one time that she really struggled to get any support to like go to states or nationals or any kind of like international kind of rowing regatta because ultimately she was a woman and so we have four founders two uh two men and two women that were just like fuck it we're just gonna do our own thing we're gonna like create our own club for our own people and we're gonna have a great time doing it and we're gonna do it really seriously and become really competitive but we're also going to like acknowledge that we're a bunch of queer people so we're gonna have fun while we're doing it and we have a really great relationship with all of the clubs in victoria i actually couldn't tell you how many clubs there are because there are so many. Melbourne has a very strong and competitive rowing community. There's a lot of clubs based sort of like in the city, like our, our main river um, is the Yarra River, which if you've seen like a photo of Melbourne, you'll probably see the Yarra. There's a few like sort of scattered along the Yarra out towards the suburbs. We row on Apple Park Lake, which is in the south of Melbourne. There's three community clubs and I think about five or six schools who row on that lake as well. It's a little lake, but it's a very pretty one. Uh, and you get really beautiful views of the city in the morning and the hot air balloons coming over or the sunrise and it's gorgeous. The rowing community these days is like really quite fantastic. We get a lot of support from other clubs at regattas as well. There's a lot of camaraderie um, in the rowing community here as well. We go to a regatta, a number of like regional regattas. There's one about four hours away and it's quite funny every year, like 
years and years and years ago, it was quite uh, daunting to go to like regional areas as like a big kind of queer group. And now this one we go to called it's called Dimbula. It was a very funny movie um, and play based on this town. And they they just celebrate that we're there, and it's so lovely and incredibly like overwhelmingly supportive when we rock up and like, oh, the Argo is back. So good to see you here. Thanks so much for coming. They really appreciate it because we take like. 40 or 50 people to these like little country regattas um and so it's mm-hmm. quite you know great for the local economy great for the town it's just like a really nice like support for their regatta and so in turn they're just like you guys are great like really nice vibe really nice people and it's yeah it's quite lovely Josh I'm really glad that you mentioned um about the founding of the club and that was back in 2001 I believe yes. and so the Argonauts were Australia's first LBGT plus rowing club. And I like the parallel here because Liz, as part of DC Strokes, uh, DC Strokes was founded back in 1991, uh, if I've got my dates right. And it is the first LGBT club that started here in the United States. And we should just say for our listeners, these two clubs are two of just a handful of clubs with this sort of a mission that exists around the world. And Liz, you know, I've known you for a long time and I've always been a little bit fuzzy about how you got involved with Strokes. I actually thought that you were a founder founder, but now it sounds like you actually got involved a couple of years in, but you know, you're someone that I've always um, turned to, to ask about basically anything it, when it comes to the history of DC Strokes, you're just an encyclopedia of knowledge there. And You know, we've talked at parties and over glasses of wine about the history of the club. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about those early years of what the club meant and what it meant to have the pink triangles as part of the logo and on the blades. Sure. So I, I came onto the scene of Strokes um, about two uh, two years after the the club began. Uh, originally, it was it was actually started by a group of front runners that were kind of looking to to do something a little bit different. Although I think uh, some of the early members like were also scholars, and so the club actually started as a sculling uh, and was envisioned as a sculling program. But when I joined, they were just sort of starting to get into sweep rowing. And one of my, actually my crew team classmates from Smith who had, who had moved to DC after I did, she had found strokes first and started rowing with them. And when I left college, I had, I didn't know adult rowing was a thing. I was just like, okay, that was my four years. That was fun. And, you know, I I was kind of done with it. And, uh, and so anyway, so she came home from practice one day and she's like, well, you know, um, the team wanted to do this, uh, this local regatta, which uh, called the Crab, the Crab Feast, which Potomac hosted. It's, it's kind of an on and again, off again event for them. But um, back then it was a regular regatta still. And, and she said, we want to, you know, we want to do a mixed eight, but we need another woman, you know, so would you mind, you know, getting in a boat? And I'm like, well, I, I can, I, I mean, it's been, you know, three years since I've, since I've rode, but, um, but sure, why not? And anyway, and that was kind of, that was the end of that. <laughs> so I started, you know, I started rowing with them uh, after that. But um, so it was interesting because the very beginning of the team, the team was um, was still quite small. But um, but the people who were rowing, certainly on the women's side, were were all ex college rowers. And so you know, so I think there was a sort of desire to kind of get back out there and kind of compete. And so um, so there was an interest in kind of being a little more um, you know public about sort of who the you know who the team was. I mean, this was. 
now, uh, like 1994, you know, after the elections. And so, I mean, it was interesting to hear Josh talk about kind of what it was like, you know, back in, in Melbourne back then, because I'd say like that was sort of an interesting time in the, in the United States as well, where like, you know, it was still not very gay, you know, gay friendly, but with, you know, Clinton being elected, there was some, you know, sense that kind of that things could change a little bit and it was possible to sort of be more public. So there was definitely an interest among some of the team members to kind of be a little more public about who the team was. So I think that's how the the uniform came about, uh, you know, when the team really sort of started racing in a in a bigger way. But in '94, they were like, "No, okay, we're gonna we're gonna try to make a statement as we're as we're out there." And so they went, you know, with the sort of the pink triangle on the on the uniform, you know, sort of evoking the, you know, the markings from the concentration camp. So it was like big pink triangle right here on the chest. And then we did the same, you know, the same thing with the with the oars. And it definitely it, it made a statement. I would say that people did not really know what to make of that. People always asked about it, which I guess was kind of the point. So it was interesting. So people definitely knew who we were. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I think it was 2019 or 2020, we changed our logo, our club logo. We've got a bit more of a slightly like modern version. And before we started, you know, putting on all of our, all of our training t-shirts and jackets and hats and whatever, we had to have like a bit of a discussion around introducing the rainbow into our logo that would be visible on people's shirts and backs of their jackets and whatever else, walking around at country regattas or through the city or whatever, just to make sure that everybody would actually be comfortable. And it was a really interesting kind of conversation because there were some people who, you know, we're very out and proud and didn't even like give it a second thought. They're like, of course, like we're a queer club. We should have a rainbow on our logo. But there was a few people that were a little bit more hesitant and just wanted to have, just understand why it was important and why it needed to happen and if it should or if it shouldn't. And it was a really just like interesting conversation and perspective to hear from people who had had much more negative experiences, I guess, like in the past with like targeted homophobia and um, those kind of like, you know, really unfortunate things that sometimes people in our community have to deal with but it's, yeah it's been great like since then it's like our logo is great now it's really colorful and it's fun it's got all it's got a rainbow it's cute I wanted to just speak to that because I came out uh in the early 90s and I remember those days when it was uh I was marching on Washington and the pink triangle and Keith Haring and the AIDS crisis and all of the vilification and the code switching, you know, to kind of pass. And there were some people that absolutely wanted to stand out and be proud and be confrontational or be sparking those conversations. And there was a lot of people who were needing to keep it on the down low. And Rachel and I talked a bit about this before the episode of, you know, when you're in a marginalized community, is it your responsibility to become an ambassador or an advocate for your cause? So that can fall into the disability community, the BPOC community, you know, immigrant community, whatever you want to say. And it made me think about when you travel, because I think when you're at your home boathouse, that's very safe. You can stay there. But like Josh said, you go out to these country regattas and you're waving these rainbow flags. And what is that like? Do you feel like you're an ambassador? Yeah, definitely. And we actually make a point to now as well. We do take the actual like rainbow flag a lot of the time and we do set it up at a marquee at a big regatta. And just to sort of signal that to it, it, the rowing space, like community has changed a lot over the last 20 years as well. There's a few like little like queer factions within other rowing clubs that there's like a, you know, a, a nice crew or a nice group of people who are all queer and, you know, just rowing another club because that's convenient for them or they get something else out of it. Their other friends row there or whatever. Um, but it's really, we do, we do make a bit of a point of it when we do go to these country regattas because we know that 
where in these regattas, we're also dealing with people who are still living in small regional towns where they might not have access to a community like what not necessarily Argonauts, but any other queer or queer sporting club can kind of offer them. And it's just, it's one of those really simple little things. It's also a safety and numbers thing as well. You know, as I said just before, like sometimes we take 40 to 50 people to these kind of spaces. So we're quite comfortable to be like, right, with, with safety and numbers, put the rainbow flag up. We, we're here to chat. We're here to talk. Like, please, please approach us if you want to. And it's just, it's something so little and really doesn't take much effort on our part to just have that kind of signal in these spaces that we are there we're quite large and you know open to chat to anybody yeah and I think people I've had that experience where I I went to an indoor rowing competition recently and I was being asked by the coach and I want to get to this too about the world rowing gender inclusion policy and how gender inclusion is now kind of the hot thing and that our youth rowers are so much more woke and so much more gender fluid than we ever were uh, when we were growing up And that I had this experience at this indoor regatta where I sat down with this young trans rower who literally was living in some little podunk country town and didn't have anybody to talk to about this and was so excited to meet not only a rower, but someone who knew the language and could speak to the language. It was such a relief for them. So I would imagine you might have those experiences, both DC Strokes and in Melbourne, when you go out to the communities, you might have somebody come up to your booth and be like, hey, so my kid is gay. How can I support my child? But there's definitely people, I think, who don't embrace that ambassador role. And there's room for all of it, I, I think. Um, but I love that you fly, literally fly the flag. And I'm sure DC Strokes does too. I wanted to ask about the world rowing gender inclusion policy, because we've been having a series here on our podcast talking to a, a few different sides of that issue. Uh, fairness in the sport and so I want to ask for DC Strokes and for Melbourne, how are you approaching the non-binary trans, you know, when you make your lineups, when you put people into competitions, has that played out in your clubs? Uh, I'd say it hasn't for Strokes yet. I mean, the, t- the team is still, I'd say, recovering <laughs> from the pandemic. And so uh, so we've not really raced in a meaningful way in the last year or two. So we haven't had to to really sort of think about it, but it's definitely, um, I know it's important, um, an important topic to our current president, Christina Dragon. And so it's something that she's definitely paying attention to. So I'm sure that the the club will have to, um, will have to tackle it. And I hope that we're in a position to tackle it very, uh, very soon. <laughs> yeah. In Australia, Rowing Australia, they're, they're working on their new policy for inclusion and what that actually looks like. And that's kind of filtering down through the respective state bodies as well. I was at a forum last year or the year before where they were kind of just like going around and doing their community kind of feedback groups and, you know, what what should happen, what shouldn't happen. And it was really interesting. The forum that I was at, there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of school rowing clubs, but there was a few parents of kids that were there just like as representatives. And they were the ones that were really like really campaigning and really kind of pushing RA to actually like, you know, make a change to the policy and make it more inclusive and make more opportunities for trans and gender diverse people to be able to participate at that competitive level. I met with Rowing Victoria a few months ago and they were kind of like showing what the policy was looking like and asking for our feedback. And it it's, you know, a few steps in the right direction, but it's definitely not a place where, not at a place, it wasn't at a place at that time anyway, where it's actually inclusive, particularly at a competitive level. From a community rowing kind of perspective, 
they don't really care too much, but there wasn't really anything in place that was actually going to be able to support people if they were to kind of come up from, you know, if they're coming up from like that learn to row kind of community rowing kind of space to that competitive level, there's still, from what I saw, it still wasn't going to kind of offer people a proper pathway for true, like serious, like senior serious competition. So I think it's, it's really amazing that they're finally like trying to do something about it and they're trying to understand what they need to do. Um, I still don't think they know what they need to do. I think a lot of the groups that they've spoken to are not trans or gender diverse people, um, which is obviously the first, <laughs> should be the first protocol, like what would be inclusive to you? But I think it is encouraging to see that they are really trying to kind of figure out how to, how to fit it in and how to make it work. Where that lands, still unclear, but hopefully in a really good space. Yeah, and that's what we see happening here in the United States, you know, looking at the entire pipeline from scholastic to national team, the policies differ. At the master's level, what I think is really fascinating is basically as of January 1, you just tell U.S. rowing, this is how I identify, and that's the group that you row with. But I'm curious to see how this plays out. This is the first season here in the United States with the new policy. And uh, I was talking to someone who basically was saying he really wants to see someone use this new policy aggressively in a negative way just to see how U.S. rowing is going to respond. Like, he's really curious to see if a couple of dudes are going to step up and say, I identify as women, as a woman, and then try and row all season as a woman. And basically, U.S. rowing has to say, okay. And he wants to see that happen just to find out like how much of a disaster it's going to be for us rowing or i don't know just to see that sounds fun <laughs> yeah i'd be i'm actually I'd be test very, the system absolutely yeah i don't know if it'll happen but he's he's curious because this is why this policy is in place right and what happens if someone takes advantage of this policy anyway that's a whole other conversation yeah i think the the discussion about fairness is one part of it, but I think the what we found is that the scholastic level coaches and teams are coming at it from an inclusion and self-worth perspective. And the folks in the elite mm-hmm. collegiate sphere are seeing it as a threat to fairness. I mean, they say that the inclusion is meaningful to them, but uh, it, it, there's, there's a lot to it. So if you haven't heard the episodes, we've done two so far from very their varying points of view. Part of being part of the LGBT community, a big part of it is pride. So I wanted to ask your clubs, what do your clubs do around pride? Do your clubs participate or celebrate pride? We we have for, for years. I mean, pretty much since I think my first uh, first year with the team, I mean, DC has had a pride festival for, you know, for that long. So I remember a Strokes booth going all the way back to, uh, to 1993, and it probably was there a year or two before that as well. So I think that that's always been, again, about sort of the visibility. There's also a, a parade. So we've marched in that. One year, even sort of crazily just uh, carrying an eight so <laughs> during the parade. I think we only tried that once and then decided that was a terrible idea. So anyway, but it's, it's, a, it's a good way for us to sort of recruit. And one thing that has been interesting to me sort of over the years is, 
is definitely that transition from people, you know, just kind of coming in and being like, oh, rowing, what's that? Or like, I can do that or that, you know, that kind of thing. And now like many more people who ha have actually, you know, done rowing and, you know, in high school or in college. And, and uh, so we got a lot more sort of experienced people. And that was not really not true 20 years ago. I'll also chime in and say that DC yeah. Strokes has been hosting Stonewall Regatta mm -hmm. for a very long time. Liz, do you remember when that regatta started? I always lose track. Yeah, well, this is at 94. And then that one I do, unlike Strokes, which I was not a founding member, I am a founding organizer of, of, yeah. of Stonewall. So. What I really love about it is it really kicks off sprint racing here in the DC, Maryland, Virginia area. And lots of people come to participate. They know that it kicks off the season and people talk about how fantastic of an event it is. They come for the racing, they come for the community, they come for the bottles of wine that they win when they take home medals. And it also kicks off Pride Month, which is why yeah. we're doing this episode, right? Yeah. Pride Month is traditionally June uh, here in the U.S. Is that the same in Melbourne? Is June Pride Not Month? Not really, no. So like, since it's become like such a big kind of corporate feast these over the last few years as well, <laughs> it's kind of bled outside of the Northern Hemisphere into, into the Southern. It's funny. So June, over June, we, there is like a bit of a surge in LGBT activity around the traps around the city. But generally in Melbourne, we have our kind of like pride month or kind of pride period over January to March. It's peak summer. So it's peak rowing season as well. So it's chaos basically every weekend there's something happening, whether it's on the queer calendar or on the rowing calendar, it's kind of go, 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 go from the start of January until mid-March. It's intense, but it's such a fun time. It's a really fun time to be in Melbourne, but it's a really fun time to be a queer rower in Melbourne because there's always something to do. It all kicks off. There's like this big country regatta that we go up to at the start of January called Rather Glen Regatta, which is beautiful wine country in Victoria. And then the following weekend is the kickoff of the queer carnival season which is here it's called midsummer and so there's a big carnival day in a big park and there's a whole um sports precinct where all of the queer sporting organizations take a stall out and it's a great place for just a big recruitment drive basically so we do that and then we get involved with the pride march and that's you know a big march down St. fitzroy street in st kilda which is um we have a new big pride center so that's like kind of like in the middle of this march and big party and carnival at the end of it and we walk down with our oars and streamers just like yelling and cheering and screaming and it's a lot of fun i've heard about pride in sydney being around mardi gras right in in february Melbourne has their queer calendar of events and then Sydney kind of kicks off and their Pride March is called Mardi Gras. And this year was World Pride in Sydney as well as Mardi Gras. And so for a lot of Victorians and New South Wales, Wales, Welsh, Welshmans, Welshmans, um, it was kind of like from January to mid end of March, just like a constant stream of like, our community is amazing. How great is our community? Let's go and support our community at another community event because the gays are doing all right. For a lot of people that I work with who aren't part of the queer community, they were just kind of looking at me like, you gays, you're just having, you're having a lot of fun, aren't you? It was really quite an amazing kind of celebration of events for those two or three months. I think this is a perfect transition to a question that we have about LGBT rowing clubs and spaces and the importance and relevance of them today, right? Which is really different than it was 30 or 40 years ago. And I know at DC Strokes, there's been a debate 
a bit on and off over the years about the mission of the club, which has always been to create a safe space for gay athletes. But there have been conversations about opening it broader and more openly to allies. I guess the question is this, is how important do you think an LGBT club is today to your community? Well, to me, it it seems really important still. I mean, it's sort of weird to say this and, you know, 30 years later, where it feels like we're maybe not in a place where people are as welcome. And, but I, I think what, ha- what has been consistent all along is, is really people looking for a community. Uh, we get a lot of new people, you know, who have moved to DC and are looking to kind of find a, find a new community, find friends and, and things like that. So I think um, I often ask people when we're kind of first day, learn to row and, you know, how did they hear about the team or, you know, what, why did they want to, um, why did they want to come learn to row and, and, and community is a common and friends and friendship is, is often why sort of people are looking for things. So I don't, I don't think a need for that will ever, will ever go away. But I, I do wonder whether we're at a point where like we need to kind of re- be rethinking the visibility piece because especially for strokes. I mean, we don't really raise eyebrows anymore. I don't, I don't feel like, but maybe going back to being a little more out and a little more sort of provocative. Yeah. There's a group here called Proud to Play. They do a lot of research on queer sports in, I think, all of Australia. And they put a thing out the other day for um, the head of Idaho Hobbit. And it was saying that 70% of LGBTQI people plus people still don't feel comfortable participating in sports. And I think you know, it's it, apparently it is getting a lot better for kids these days um, going through school and trying new sports and being more welcomed by their peers for various sexual or gender differences. But that, you know, for our generation or my generation and above, there's still a lot of trauma that comes from high school sports and people who still like are scared of the idea or don't want to touch the idea of sports. And we run a lot of learn to row programs throughout the year. And it's always really nice to see the diversity and age range of people kind of coming through those programs and being able to offer them a really safe space where most of the people are going to be queer identifying. We do have a few straight people rowing with us. We, we don't discriminate against the heteros. All are very welcome uh, at the Argonauts. I think it's being able to offer a space for people to come and just learn a new skill or meet some new people in an environment where that's not going to be a question or you're not going to be questioned about it at all is I think something that's always going to be important. Even, you know, myself, I'm completely comfortable and very out and really comfortable in a lot of spaces, but I do find that when I'm in a queer space, I like, you know, I'm able to relax that little bit extra and feel a lot more, a little bit more comfortable in my own skin and act the way that I want to act and not have to like hide or pretend that I'm not something that I actually am. And this is part of a much larger conversation being had about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And often we have those conversations revolving around race and gender. But it's interesting to also to loop in the queer community. And this is another important piece of DEI. Here in the United States, the last few years especially, there have been lots of conversations about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I think a lot of clubs and universities at every level are doing their best. The learning curve has been huge and lots of things are changing. I think that we all have a lot to learn, even when we think we already know enough. So I wanted to ask you two, how do you think boathouses and clubs can build an atmosphere of inclusion? It's obviously the right thing to do, but I think the really important thing is doing it from a place that is genuine and not that tokenistic, oh, we need to increase our 
women or people of color or whatever it is quotas it's like you know wanting to create a space and create a community that is equal and fair for all and really making sure that it's coming from a place that like we just want to do that because everybody deserves to be a part of this it shouldn't just be for the cis white male elite athlete who's come from a private school family who their family bought a new eight for the club and or for the school or whatever and that means that they get first entry into the top grade eight or whatever you want to make sure that it's really coming from that place of like we just want to create a space where everybody feels welcome and everybody feels comfortable. And there's always a lot of complications that come when you're trying to build a or provide a space for a diverse community as well. Like our sheds, we we share a very crappy old rundown single bathroom with a bunch of schools, one open change room that you've got to, you know, time between like the school and the community club. So layering on top of that, wanting to provide a space for like, gender diverse people and people who need a bit who requ- require and want like more a bit more privacy and that kind of getting changed and everything is it's really complicated and it's really hard and you know a lot of things some of these things do require a lot of time like you know big money bags um but it's I think as long as it's coming from that place of like genuine support and genuine inclusion I think you know these kind of like little things you can kind of build on and build on and build on and get to a place where everyone is feeling like they are welcome yeah thanks Josh yeah, I love that. We've had you for almost an hour. So we wanted to wrap it up with um, asking you about you and what is on your plate for this year for rowing. Well, uh, for me, it's a little bit up in the air because of the, of the Barbados plans, but I've managed uh, so far this year to get some some coaching done and, and one learn to row class. So, um, so I'm try, trying to make sure I sort of check that box. Um, I do understand that Barbados has has a rowing team of sorts. So I think there is a national a national rowing team, although we haven't we haven't figured out where it is yet. And um, it seems like they're heading more down the path of like coastal rowing, uh, you know, which is not surprising given given the environment there. But um, we're hoping to, to debating whether do we sort of stick with rowing, do we try to find a new hobby, uh, sort of things like that. But um, but I should have mentioned that something else um, I have been involved with over the years is as the Gay and Lesbian Rowing Federation. And when Stonewall started, uh, which was in 94 at the Gay Games in New York, um, sort of time together with the, with the 25th anniversary of, of Stonewall, um, we did rowing as an exhibition sport that year. And so because rowing was not a, a gay game sport. And so I and um, Brian Todd, um, after that event, there was uh, there was Amsterdam where there was rowing, and then that turned out to be just because there was someone there who was part of the organizing committee and was able to to get it into the um, get it into the sports lineup. But uh, Brian and I spent sort of a number of years after that trying to get rowing added as one of the official federation of gay games sports, and we we sort of gave up eventually just because it it didn't seem clear that we were ever going to be successful. But the organization we created sort of still exists. And so Brian is way more active than uh, than I am and has done a lot more. But one of the things that he's been working on that I've been assisting with a little bit is an air competition, which um, which happens in Las Vegas as part of the Sin City Sports Festival. So he, he's had that sort of twice now. And so we're sort of trying to grow that event a little bit. So I'll probably sort of try to help with that from afar. And what I've seen that's unique about that event is that there are non-binary divisions. Mm-hmm. There are trans divisions. There's a lot of very creative um, and new ways of creating events. So I, yeah. I really appreciate him forging ahead and using his platform for that. So we'll put links to all of this in the uh, show notes. Great. Josh, what about you? What's up this year for you? 
Uh, well, we're literally just ending our season right now. Um, <laughs> I think the last week out it happened two weeks ago. <laughs> so we're kind of gearing up to go into winter winter hibernation, but we are throwing our rowing camp. It's called Camp Camp. Um, and we're doing a sort of to end the season where finishing on a sort of a home rowing weekend, which we're calling Home Home, um, which is a little bit silly, but a little bit funny. So we're we're getting um, kind of prepared to host that just for our club in a few weeks. But then I'm not I'm not sure I'm going to be stepping down. I've been on the committee for the past seven years with the Argonauts, and I've been president for the past four. Um, so I'm going to be stepping down Ow. this year. <laughs> but I'm I'm you know incredibly proud of everything that we've achieved. So I think just figuring out where else I fit uh, and sit in the club, um, what I where I end up landing. I always think it's uh, actually pretty interesting to take one hat off and maybe to put another one on, you know, uh, step out of your role as president, but that might open the doors to something else. But we'll have to keep in touch and, and find out what you're up to in the coming the coming year uh, yeah. way and how things move forward for your club with uh, a new president in charge. I'm impressed you stuck it out for, uh, for four years. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I, yeah. I, I do um, think it's a tendency of, of both sort of stroke seats as well as coxswains, I think, are, are often sort of the organizers <laughs> and leaders. So it's like not, not yeah, right. it's it's hard to step away. I think it's that stubbornness as well. It's like, I can't do this another year. Um, yeah, no, it's been, it's been, it has been amazing, though. All right. Well, this has been fantastic talking to both of you. Um, did we miss anything? Is there anything that we wish that we had asked you about, something specific that you wanted to talk about that, that we didn't quite cover? I'm actually not 100% certain of this, but I'm pretty sure there's an, another uh, LGBT rowing club that's opened up in Perth. So we're no longer the only Australian sole um, LGBTQI uh, rowing club, I'm pretty sure. Oh, right. well, we'll have to look into that. We wanted to acknowledge also that there is the London Otters. We'll be talking to Michael from Chicago Rowing Union. Uh, there used to be a team in San Francisco called the Beyblades. Uh, we're not sure if they're terribly active at this point. There were others. I mean, it's it's. I do feel like it kind of rises and falls with the different, you know, the gay games or the out games and, mm. and things like that. There's one in Barcelona, I thought. Oh, oh, because we we were we we're all of you at the gay games in Paris. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm sure we met a club in um, from Barcelona that were there. Oh. I can't remember what they were called. Um, one of the other things that like was bizarre about the gay games, we got there and every other club in the world seemed to have rowing pins and no one had told us about these rowing pins. <laughs> it was this like thing or part of the gay games tradition. And we're all just like, who, what, who, no, no why did, who, how did you get the memo? Why did you get any memo about rowing pins? And everyone was trading their rowing pins and it was all really cute and a really nice way to meet other people from other clubs. And we're like, yeah. where's ours? Oh, <laughs> yeah. So next eight games, we will have pins. Definitely have pins. All right. Well, thank you so much. This has been super fun. Uh, Happy Pride to DC Strokes folks and happy end of season for you, Josh. So uh, (laughs) look forward to hearing what's next. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Of course. There's so much I could talk about, you know, because of all, because of all my memories with, with DC Strokes and all my experiences there and, you know, earlier you had asked me about like how I got involved with strokes. And I, yeah. I think I was a little flippant and basically saying, oh, it was, you know, kind of by accident. I got an invitation. And next thing I knew I was, I was rowing there and the people were great. But what I didn't talk about is why I stuck around, you know, um, and something I've been really honest about over the years is just how much DC strokes changed my life. It completely 
opened up my eyes to a community that I wasn't really a part of. I mean, I was an ally, but barely, you know, I was not an active ally. I had LGBT friends. It didn't really phase me. Let me put it that way. I was like, great, she's a lesbian. Like, that's kind of what my philosophy on things was. And by joining DC Strokes, it just really helped me understand, like, why it was important that there was an LGBT club. And it became my mission to help support the mission of DC Strokes over the years. And that's become a really big piece of who I am. And people understand that. And they understand that DC Strokes is a family to me. Mm-hmm. Even though this year I've stepped away to be with another club, that was a really huge decision for me because I so want to support the mission of DC Strokes. Yeah. Um, you know. Especially when you see the impact it can have on the individuals in the club and you feel mm-hmm. your own impact mm-hmm. by being around such a community like that. Um, yeah. I know it can be really profound. And then doing yeah. something that you love and doing something that's fun and challenging and and everybody's on the same path and, and going for the same goal. I think it's it's really, really important that we find those communities for ourselves. You know, we talk a lot about that, Boathouse is home. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that um, chosen family, that became really apparent to me over my years with DC Strokes. And it's meant a lot to me to become a part of um, many of my teammates' chosen families. To see photos of Liz, Josh, and their clubs, and to get links to the people, policies, and events mentioned in this episode, check out the show notes on our website. Listen to more episodes about everything from indoor rowing to rowing across oceans. Search the podcast archive at steadystatenetwork.com slash podcast dash topics, or listen on your favorite podcast app. Hey, Rachel, I think some listeners might not know that Steady State is more than a podcast so much more. We get together on Instagram Live for Coffee Chat every Friday morning at 8 a.m. West, 11 East. We bring that post-practice Coffee with Teammates vibe online to talk with the community about all things rowing. Grab your favorite mug and add your voice to the conversation. And make plans to visit us at the 2023 U.S. Rowing Masters Nationals, July 20th to 23rd in Indianapolis. Get more info when you subscribe to our weekly e-newsletter. This episode was written, produced, hosted, and edited by me, Tara Morgan. And me, Rachel Friedman. Tara provides additional audio engineering and is our sponsor coordinator. Rachel manages our website and social media. Our theme music is by Jonas Hipper. Between us, we have nearly 40 years of rowing, coaching, and coxing experience, and we run successful rowing-related enterprises. Hera is the founder of Seize the Oar Foundation, which champions inclusion in the sport of rowing through team training, outreach, and thought leadership. And Rachel is the founder of RowSource, designing unique rowing gear for individuals, clubs, and events. Find us on Instagram and Facebook at Steady State Network, Seize the Oar, and RowSource. Coming up on the next episode, while most of us have spent our careers in flat water rowing, a small but growing group of athletes are making a transition to coastal rowing. In 2021, U.S. Rowing voted its first ever beach sprints national team. And in 2022, next level rowing appeared on the scene, training rowers who have gone on to win medals at international coastal regattas. 
The U.S. is just taking on this discipline, which has been raced for generations in Europe. And we'll talk with Coastal Rowing Rising Stars, Christopher Back and Christine Cavallo. In two, way enough. That's one, two. of how I actually say that on the water. I don't say it that way. Into, wait, enough? Yeah, it's more powerful when I'm on the water. <laughs> Herding cats. Herding cats. 